Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 505. As you all know, in episode 505, we discussed the suspects, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. These are the two young men, each 19 years old, who a few days after the murders of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, left the state of Arkansas to go to California. They were picked up in California and questioned by the Oceanside Police Department. They failed a couple of polygraph tests. And so we, we spent a good hour uh, this week in the main episode going over everything that went on with these two. And Mike, I think that the listeners have quite a few questions for us to kind of follow up on that. And we've done a little more research since then as well. Yeah, we've definitely got a lot of questions for this week. We've also got a voicemail that we're going to play. Okay, well, let's go get right into the show and maybe we'll start right off with the voicemail. Okay, to start things out, this voicemail here is from Sunshine. Hi, guys. This is Sunshine from Las Vegas, and I'm calling about the, I think it's 502 initial uh, people of interest. And one of the things that you had been discussing is how the individual would have been aware of the binding that was done of the hands to feet. And, you know, unless they had had exposure from being at the crime scene or what have you. And I guess my question is about whether or not there were a lot of individuals around when the bodies were discovered. Uh, And I might be confounding it with some imagery from like Devil's Knot or um, other material like that. But I I seem to recall that there were several individuals, not just law enforcement, but maybe multiple family members or even neighbors or people who had been participating in the search that were then um, sort of loitering nearby and, and watching. And so I'm just wondering if perhaps in the neighborhood it was a little bit more public knowledge about the binding just because of how many individuals had occasion to witness the retrieval of the bodies. Um, so if you could clarify that, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, that's a good question, Sunshine. And yeah, a lot of this has been mixed up because of the movies and things that are out there. But the reality is, no, no one was back in the woods where the boys were found. Uh, in fact, so all of the family members and bystanders were all gathered at the end of West Macaulay Street, right by the pipe bridge. So that's where the Mayfair apartments were. Now, that's where it's believed that the boys you know, went off the road across the pipe bridge into those woods. 
Uh, so that's where the crime scene tape was put up. That's where everybody was. Uh, and then the police, of course, were back in the woods behind the Blue Beacon. And that's where they, they found the bodies, removed them. Uh, the police didn't even take the bodies back that way. They actually created a new path from the Blue Beacon parking lot, which would be on the west northwest side of the woods, to carry the bodies and the evidence out. Um, so they cordoned off that parking lot, and they they took all the evidence through there, including the boys' bodies. So and it's to the south of there, on the other side of the bayou, where all the bystanders were. And so once the bodies were found, once the first body was found, when Detective Allen found Michael Moore's body, uh, the area was immediately deemed a crime scene. Tape was put up. Everybody was kept back. No media, no family, no nothing. So the scene that that we've seen in Paradise Lost, where we see Pam Hobbs collapsing and screaming, uh, kind of kicking her feet at the horrific scene when she finds out that her son uh, has been found and that he was murdered. That took place south of the bayou at the end of West Macaulay Street, uh, right there by the Mayfair Apartments. And that's where everybody was located. So, uh, nope, there were no bystanders back there. There was just a handful of police officers that were investigating the crime scene. Okay, our first question comes from Danielle. Did Bob mention if Chris and or Brian had alibis for the night on 5-5? And it wasn't clear, but were they ruled out because their DNA didn't match anything taken from the crime scene? Okay, no, we didn't bring up anything about their alibis. Um, I had to dig a little deeper uh, into that to figure it out. Uh, the episode was more focusing on the interrogation tactics and everything that was put into them and why they were considered suspects. And, of course, the failed polygraph test. But they did have an alibi, so to speak, a woman named Wendy Holm, who I, I believe was the girlfriend of maybe Holland. I'm, I'm not just off the top of my head, not sure about that. But in any case, she was interviewed by Detective Brian Ridge. And she said that after she was questioned, she looked at her calendar and figured out that May 5th was the day where she had gone to the beaches or the banks of the Mississippi River that day on May 5th and was sunbathing there. And both Chris Morgan and Brian Holland were with her there at the beach. They were climbing the rocks or climbing the the banks or whatever, why she was sunbathing, and then they went out to a club together that night uh, and spent the evening together. So that was their alibi. Uh, it's it's a little shaky, and this is another odd thing that I don't know if we've particularly addressed yet, but there are reports in the official record from police officers or investigators working on the case who had said that they had done checking uh, prior to trial and discovered that on May 5th, 1993, that it was like 89 degrees that day. But the problem is, if you go and look online at historical weather data, the one I like to use is, is a website called Weather Underground. It shows that the high that day was 73 degrees. Everything that I can find says that it was 73 degrees that day. So then the question becomes, is she really out sunbathing on a 73-degree day? Uh, I've had a couple of listeners. I know uh, one listener from Texas, Kathy, had emailed in and said, you know, ask your wife if she would ever be sunbathing at 73 degrees. I think we just have to do a lot of speculation there. I don't know. I know in Michigan where we live, where we have pretty dramatic swings in the seasons, uh, it's all a matter of perspective. So in the springtime, when it's been 20, 30 degrees for several months, and you get a, you know, an Indian summer day, they call them, you know, 55, 60 degrees, we'll be outside in shorts and t-shirts and, you know, people be playing beach volleyball down at the beach here close to our house. And it's like the nicest day of the year. In contrast, if it's in the middle of July, when it temperature typically around 80 or 90 degrees, and you get a 55, 60 degree day, everybody will be bundled up in coats and sweatshirts and everything, and it's the same temperature. So, you know, it could have been one of those deals where it had been cold and 73 seemed nice enough, but, you know, it, just, it seems a little chilly to be out wearing a, a bikini sunbathing. 
So I don't know. But yes, that was their alibi uh, was Wendy Holm, who said that she was with them during that entire day and evening. Joy writes, Holland and Morgan knew key information about the crime that had not been released to the public. How did Gitchell and West Memphis PD react to this? Were further interrogations done of the two along with who they claimed to have gotten the information from? If not, this is a big example of the police dropping the ball. I have found no records of any kind of interrogation by the West Memphis Police Department. There were some back and forth conversations between them and the Oceanside PD. Uh, they did some checking, uh, for example, you know, tracking down this this Wendy home, which they did on the 3rd of August that year. So it was a few months later when she was interviewed. So you know, they, they kind of kept looking into it, but no, they never called them called them into question. I, and I, I think I forgot to answer uh, the second half of one of the last questions you asked me, which was how were they ever cleared? Yeah, Danielle asked if they were ruled out because of DNA testing. We have no real clear indication. We just have the notes by the detectives saying they were ruled out unless further evidence becomes available. I think basically the cops didn't have anything else on them other than the failed polygraphs and the fact that they left. And that's just it. We don't I don't I don't have I haven't found any way DNA results that came back in. But the problem is at the time there wasn't really any DNA on the crime scene for them to compare it to. They hadn't really found any. So that wasn't going to do them a whole lot of good. So keep in mind that when they were giving their samples for like a sexual assault kit, the autopsies of the boys were not back in yet. So they hadn't gotten word back from Frank Peretti. You know, this was May 17th. I'm trying to pull it from the top of my head, but I think May 22nd was the day that Gitchell, uh, Inspector Gitchell, wrote a letter to the ME, Dr. Peretti, asking him some questions about sexual assault because they still didn't have the autopsy results in. And then ultimately it was determined that there there was no sexual assault. At least there was no obvious indication of sexual assault. So I think it just it, it spun out. And then also, as we're going to get into as weeks go on, uh, they the police narrowed in on other suspects and, uh, as often happens, pretty much had blinders on. You know, in this week's episode on Sunday, we're going to talk about a lot of the other leads that that happened in the first the first week or so. And it's you know they're they're just juggling all these you know, little pieces of leads and then they narrow in on somebody and then they just, everything else goes away. Uh, so I think that has probably more to do with why they were ruled out. On the hands and feet being tied up, not being public information, Jennifer posted on the fan page an article from May 8th, 1993. It was an issue of the Commercial Appeal, which was a newspaper in West Memphis, that described the boys' injuries and says the boys' hands and feet were bound. Could this be how Chris and Brian got this information? Yeah, it could be, and I saw that that was that was Jennifer Carlson, right? That had put that up. Yeah, she but she's put a lot of resources up on the fan page, um, and she, she knows the case really well and has has a pretty quick memory for finding them. Um, so yeah, so there there was an article, and she I think she posted the link to it on the fan page. You can find it where in the commercial appeal it says, and this was on the May eighth, so we're talking like the Saturday after the boys were found that their their feet were bound to their hands. And so, yeah, that could definitely be it. The only problem that I had with it, see, what I was looking at was um, scans of newspaper articles that were available. And I wasn't able to find any. And some of them are just hard to read uh, because they're bad scans or, or photos of the newspapers. But I hadn't been able to find anything in there. So this article, the only link I've been able to find with it goes to a website called Tap Talk, which is a, an online forum. And it, it's not a link to... The commercial appeals website. It's not a scan of the article. Somebody typed it out like a transcript, which I'm sure. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not legit. It just I was when we're trying to figure out which information is legitimate enough to to talk about on the show. You know, I don't have unless there's one out there 
a source document to this. I just have this, you know, the, these online forums where people either cut and paste or typed it out. Um, that being said, I have no reason to believe that it's not accurate. Um, and, and the thing was put up a long time ago. It's not like somebody typed this thing out last week after we had the conversation about it. It's, it's been there for quite a while. And the top of the conversation is not the bindings. It just happens to be in there. So I'm certain that's a legit article. Knowing that, yeah, it was going around, you know, just a couple of days after the murders that the boys' hands and feet were bound. So certainly that's where Morgan and Holland could have gotten that information. And in, in that case, Detective McDonough was off base and telling them there's no way they got it from the newspaper. And this just occurred to me. Do you think maybe that was an interrogation tactic he was using? Could have been. It's not a good one. That's a recipe for a false confession. Go back to the FBI's interview guide they gave to the West Memphis PD that they give to many law enforcement agencies. It says, you know, ask questions like, why would I find your fingerprints at the scene and see how they react to it? But it's kind of like we talked about in the episode. If you tell them, we found your fingerprints on the scene, you're lying to them, you'd be shocked. People think that false confessions don't happen, and they do. You know, you, you start feeling like you're, you're, you're cornered like that, and you never know what, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, say or do to work your way out of it. So it could have been an interrogation tactic. It's, it's not an ethical interrogation tactic to lie to a suspect like that in that way. Uh, it's a recipe for a disaster. But to be honest with you, I think more than likely he just didn't know anybody. Remember, this guy's out in California. He's got limited information from the West Memphis PD. I think more than likely um, the guy didn't seem all that sharp to me anyway. My personal opinion, um, he probably just didn't know. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, and we have two points here from Easy Keys. First, I could be wrong, but I was under the impression that if you're not under arrest, you don't have to be read your rights. Thought being, you can leave at any time if you have the sense to ask to leave. What are your thoughts here? You don't have to be under arrest to be read your rights, but I believe that you need to be detained, or you're required to if you're detained. So in Morgan and Holland's instance, they were told throughout the interview, if you watch them on YouTube on a number of occasions, oh, yeah, you can leave whenever you want. And, and that's a common tactic with police, you know. Sure, you can leave, but you don't want to leave. You know, if you leave, you know, we're going to have to arrest you or something. You know, what are we going to do here? So they were technically not detained for questioning in that case. So a lot of people believe, I know people personally who have been arrested for things. And they're like, oh, this, this whole arrest is bullshit because I was never read my rights, you know, like they do on TV. Well, that's not accurate. You don't get read your rights because you're being arrested. You look at what the Miranda rights are. that You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. 
typically those if the police aren't questioning you, if they're just arresting you, they they have no reason to read you your rights to an attorney or anything like that. It comes into it comes into play specifically for when law enforcement is questioning you to make you aware that you do have the right to have an attorney with you, even to the extent that if you can't afford it, that they'll appoint one to represent you and that you you don't have to say anything. You're not required to talk to the police. You're not required to answer them. Now, with all that being said, I mean, there could have been, you know, we don't have the first part of the video. It could have been that they were you know, verbally just told, oh, you know, you guys know you can have an attorney, right? But 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 I know there are several cases where, you know, situations like this are then brought into court later and a judge could rule one or the other. But oftentimes they'll rule that whatever they say is not admissible because they were never made aware of their rights. And the police will will oftentimes offer, well, they weren't under arrest. They weren't detained. We were just having a conversation. You know, they try to spin it as we were just having a conversation. Well, you got him in a freaking interrogation room for six hours. And because, you know, it, it's all about, you know, the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law. You put somebody in an interrogation room for six hours, you're interrogating them, you're questioning them. They should be Mirandized before you do that. Um, they may use an excuse. And, and what they do is they run the risk of a judge saying, you know, say one of them did confess. Well, judge say, well, was this person made aware of his rights? Did he know that he didn't have to talk to you? Did he know that he could have an attorney present? Did he know any of that stuff? And if he didn't, very likely a judge could then rule that inadmissible. The problem with it is a lot of law enforcement, I won't say all, but a lot of law enforcement officers, they'll jump through hoops so they don't have to Mirandize them and read them their rights because, you know, the last thing they want is for somebody to, to get an attorney. Because you and I both know, Mike, that if you're coming in for questioning for something like this and you call an attorney, what's the first thing an attorney's going to tell you? They're going to tell you not to say a word. Exactly right. Yeah, because really most attorneys, and it's smart, you know, for a defense, whether they're innocent or guilty, nothing good can come from you talking. And, and this is a little my advice to any of you if you're ever arrested for something you didn't do or something you did do. Nothing good can come from you talking. As you heard with Morgan and Holland, they went on for hours over and over and over and over and over again. They say, I didn't do this. I had nothing to do with this. The detectives didn't care. They wanted to hear them say they did do it. So they keep going and going and going. And then what ends up happening is you end up getting tripped up Alibi's huge. We heard Michael Ware, the executive producer or executive director of the Innocence Project, uh, a couple months ago come on the show and say, 40 years uh, working as a defense attorney, he's never, ever once seen an alibi work in court. Um, they don't work. But so what happens is the, the, the cops keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And a typical person that didn't commit a crime on a particular day that has no substance to them, it was just an ordinary day, usually can't account for every minute of their time. It's perfectly normal. But when you're in that situation and you start talking and, the, and you start getting nervous and the police start pushing you, the, the most common, I mean, 25% of DNA exonerations, people that have been convicted of a crime through conclusive DNA evidence were exonerated, proven they didn't do it, 25% of those people falsely confessed to a crime. Uh, so, so roll that around in your mind for a minute. And, and a lot of times then what happens is that they start trying to create an alibi. You know, so that, well, I think I was here and, oh, I remember I called this person or I did this. And and sometimes they're just trying to make something up. Sometimes they're legitimately trying to remember. Then they start trying, the police start trying to corroborate the the information they gave them about their alibi. And, you know, something doesn't add up. And now all of a sudden you've lied about your alibi. And that's now evidence in court against you that you lied about where you're at. When oftentimes it's a simple matter of they didn't know where they were at. And during the course of an interrogation, they were trying to give the police the information they needed and ended up biting them in the ass. So a long rambling story about Miranda, 
but police don't want to let you know that you can have an attorney, or I shouldn't say that. They don't want you to bring an attorney in because every defense attorney you're ever going to come across is going to tell you to shut the hell up. Let them find evidence. Don't give them evidence because there's no there's no chance at all that a cop who thinks that you're convicted of a crime through the course of you explaining is and you're like, oh, no shit. Okay, you didn't do it. You're free to go now. It's just not going to happen. All it can do is hurt you. Easy key second point. In the recordings, it was stated that Bobby D'Angelo worked at a car wash. Could it have been the Blue Beacon truck wash near the crime scene? No, he worked at, uh, and it was named Pride something, or I, I, I don't know on the tip of my tongue. Uh, but no, I, I believe it was a car wash in Memphis. Okay, and then Jen says, did the interrogators use the prisoner's dilemma on the boys and tell them that the other had confessed? If so, what was the response? No, they didn't specifically uh, use that tactic, which is to say, well, this guy, but, but they, they alluded to it a few times. Um, I think one of the clips in there, what did he say? Is like, you know, here, I, I'm trying to clear you. And you, what did he say? You, you, you blow up the atmosphere. Oh, yeah, right. And it was the same atmosphere that blew up in the other room. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they did a little bit of that where they were trying to play him against each other. But um, Brian Holland was sharp. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't having it when he's just like, I know. And you're going to tell me that he's saying this and that, but I'm telling you, this is this is what happened. So they tried that a little bit to kind of play one against the other. I have a feeling, though, that during break times that the boys, just based on some things that McDonough said, that they were actually, um, Morgan and Holland were able to be in the same room because they kept talking about how you guys have been talking and you've got this story straight and that story straight. So I think that there may have been instances where they actually, in the middle of all this, were together. So no, I mean, they used, they, they did use, however, a tactic that's going to come into play later on. It was a common tactic. <laughs> Mike's smiling because oh, yeah. it's so ridiculous. Um, but it, it does come into play in this later on. A common tactic in the 90s, and it's just stupid. And it and it will work, I guess, occasionally where Mc, Detective McDonough in front of Brian Holland draws a circle on the paper. In the, and you can see this in the videos. And he says, see the circle here? This is the problem. And then, and then inside the circle, <laughs> right there in the middle, the only people in the problem right now are the victims. Than the guy who did it. Right now, you're out here outside of the problem. You're out here outside the circle. Now, do you want to be out here with us on the outside of this problem? Or do you want to be in here inside the problem? You know, because you start lying to us, all of a sudden, now you come here inside the problem. It's not funny, but it, it is kind of funny because it, you're, you're going to see that that exact same tactic is used later on in this case uh, to almost verbatim. A tactic that apparently the visual representation of someone seeing a circle on a piece of paper uh, and, and made to feel that if you're outside of the circle, you're buddies with the cops, the good guys. And if you're inside, you're buddies with the, the perpetrators, the bad guys. So that tactic was you didn't work on Holland through most of the interview. If you watch the video, it's priceless. You just look at Brian Holland. As McDonough is just rambling on and on and on, and he's just looking at him, and you can just tell what's running through his mind is, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> this thing called friendship or whatever, you know, lines like that are priceless. And while we're talking about the interview, Michael writes, do you know if there's anything that police or detectives can't say in an interview? I mean, technically, they can say anything they want to, but it's all a matter of how things end up being used in court. I mean, I was taught when I was trained to do interviews. Now, again, I was a fireman, not law enforcement, although we were investigating crimes, arson. But, you know, my instructors taught us to never lie to a suspect. 
Um, definitely never one thing that is a big no-no is to lead the suspects to believe that you can give them a deal because you can't only a prosecutor can do that. So, you know, like when you see on uh, some law enforcement TV shows where they'll say, you know, if you tell us this, I can take the death penalty off the table. If you tell me the answer to this, well, no, they can't. And you can't say that. And then that will definitely be called into question as a coerced confession if that happens. Now, what you can say is, I promise that if you give us the truth here, you try to help us out, that I will I will let the DA know that you've been cooperative, and that may go a long way to help you out. You can say that, but you can't say, if you do this, you'll get X deal, unless the district attorney's in there with a piece of paper that says, here's the deal I'm offering. That's a big no-no. And also lying to them. You know, if Say they were to tell Brian Holland, we have your fingerprints on the scene. We know you were there. Tell us why you were there. And he says, uh, well, okay, well, maybe I was I was there and blah, 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 and give some story. Well, then it's going to be called into question that well, you, they used intimidation tactics to coerce a false confession by lying to the subject. Uh, so, you know, they can say what they want, but what it ends up doing is it limits what can actually be used in court. Um, it, which, which That's why, like I mentioned in the episode, what you want to do is give very open-ended questions and let the suspect talk don't because you, you the same thing can be true if you give them information uh another thing that's going to probably come up later in this case is you know if i sit down and tell you well these these boys were murdered at 7 15 p.m and then and then later i give a confession that says yeah at 7 15 p.m i killed them well any defense attorney is going to pick that apart and say well where did that information come from and if you look at like Jim Trainum, who's been on the show before, an expert in uh, interview techniques and tactics and false confessions, tell you, you should never, ever, ever give the suspect information when you're questioning them. Be- and, and so when he does a, an analysis, an interview analysis after the fact, where he's examining the practices during a particular interview, that's what he's looking for. Everything the suspect says, where did that information originate? Was he the first one to say it? Or was he repeating something the detectives say? And he'll put it through a checklist and come through and decide whether this there's any integrity in the interview or interrogation based on that. So that's a huge, huge no-no is to give the suspect information. The tactic you see on TV that officers will do, they've done it in this case, you know, where you throw you know a picture of the victim at the crime scene in front of a suspect to try to get a reaction out of them. Well, it's it's reading tea leaves anyway to get a reaction out of somebody. Uh, even somebody that's an expert in behavior analysis, every, everybody has a different baseline. People are going to react differently. You know, I may show Mike a picture of a bloody, gory scene, and he might throw up. And you might show the same picture to me, and I might just have to turn away and can't look at it. Well, neither one of us were involved in that crime, but we both react differently. But what they have done now is, if they showed this picture to Mike and I, is shown us exactly what the crime scene looked like. You've given us information that can later be crafted into a narrative. And what could ultimately become a confession or a false confession. So you don't you don't ever want to walk away from your interview questioning, was that a legitimate confession? Did I give them the information to create that confession? Which is exactly what happened to Jim Trainum, what put him down years ago, which is what put him on the path he's on now, which is trying to make these false confessions right and teach people not to do them. Because he got a false confession after hours of interrogation and showing a suspect pictures of the crime scene, and feeding her information, not realizing that he gave her all the tools to create a completely false narrative. Yeah, one thing I find kind of funny is that these investigators aren't necessarily intentional in giving away that information. Whereas I think a lot of time, especially in, say, true crime, 
people could assume that a lot of investigators are corrupt and that they're trying to get a false confession. Yeah, most of the time, from what Jim Trainum will say, oftentimes, most of the time, again, remember that statistic I just gave you, 25%, one out of four people who are exonerated through DNA evidence confessed to the crime. 25% confessed to the crime. So that's a lot. That's a lot that have been released. Okay, that's nowhere near the the number of people who have actually been wrongfully convicted. That's only the number, I think in 2009, were the statistics that I was reading about this. There was like 258 DNA exonerations at that point. Uh, and so that was eight years ago. Uh, and 25% of them were were false confessions. So there's there's way more, thousands more than that of people who have been wrongfully incarcerated. There's There's no doubt about that. But yeah, you assume that everyone is a corrupt police agency. Uh, when the fact of the matter is most of the time when something like that, a false confession happens, because even for police officers, especially who aren't specifically trained to look for the signs uh, to interview properly, look for the signs of false confession. They don't know that they that they did that. You know, they, they get a confession. They're high five and they're going out for a beer. They made it. They got their confession. They got the person to confess. Uh, and the last thing they want to do is believe that it was a false confession. Uh, and so oftentimes, too, they're not realizing the tactics they used uh, to get there. But, yeah, most of the time it's it, it's a mistake. It's, it's a mistake. And also it happens a lot in police departments where they don't experience things like, you know, if you go to Baltimore where there's 300 plus murders a year and they have a whole homicide division of detectives that only investigate homicides and have interviewed thousands of homicide suspects. They're likely not to make that mistake, but it's also known to be somewhat of a corrupt police department, and they may likely intentionally do this. Uh, but it's not a mistake they're going to make there as often as someone like, say, West Memphis PD, who doesn't have a lot of homicides, doesn't have a homicide division, uh, and has never seen a crime like this before. Or, you know, and I don't know much about Oceanside PD, but same thing. Uh, and, and most of them have had you know an eight-hour course on the read technique, uh, which is a dangerous technique. It works really well to elicit information, but if you're not careful. Uh, it can elicit the wrong information. So, but yeah, it's a good point that a lot of times these are just simple mistakes, careless interview tactics by the investigators. Okay, and Cassie wanted to know what the relationship was between Chris and Brian and the three boys. She also wanted to know where Morgan and Holland were in the hour or so that Chris Byers was late from school on the 5th. Well, the second half of the question, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody knows where they were at in that hour after school. The relationship was uh, Brian Holland didn't have any relationship to them at all. Chris Morgan's parents lived four doors down from the Hobbs. Uh, so he knew them because of, from living there. I, and I didn't get the impression that he knew them all that well. Bobby D'Angelo is one of his best friends. He was the one that had the close relationship with them. I mean, Chris knew them enough to go over and kind of give his condolences. But at the same time, he was also moving a refrigerator that they had delivered from Renna Center that day, the day after the bodies were found, which is just odd. But it, I don't know. It's a discussion for another day. But Bobby D'Angelo's parents were very close friends with the Hobbses. So he had spent a lot of time there. He considered Stevie almost like a little brother to him. So he's the one that had the close relationship. Morgan had some relationship based on where he grew up. And then Brian Holland just had a relationship with Chris Morgan and Bobby D'Angelo, not with the Hobbses. When talking about episode 505, listener Joy points out the unreliability of polygraph testing. Bob, why do you think these guys failed their tests? And also, since they're so unreliable, why do police still use them? Well, police use them, but they're not admissible in court because they are unreliable. People call them lie detector tests. They're not lie detector tests. They're polygraph examinations, and they measure your body's physical response to stressors. 
questions. And, and so basically what a polygraph does, it's much more complicated than this, but it's if I ask you a question and you're stressed out when you answer it, then it's deception indicated. You lied. So it could have been a number of reasons. First of all, both these guys, I think, I know for sure Chris Morgan had a serious drug problem, and I believe Holland did too. That right there could cause it. Just the, the stress from being, and you can see it's it's almost like, and I think, Mike, you pointed out when we were watching the video in the latter half. It looked like Chris Morgan was in withdrawals. Yeah, yeah, he was freaking out. Um, they're also both smokers. I know I saw Chris Morgan packing a pack of cigarettes when he was finally getting ready to be released. We don't know if they were given smoke breaks or anything like that, you know, like a nicotine. Just being a 19-year-old kid and being questioned about a homicide, triple homicide, that'll stress you out. So, you know, it could have been they were lying. Absolutely. But if you take everybody, when we get done with this case and you see how many people failed polygraphs about this, it's, okay, so who did it? You know, yeah. and it depends on your agenda. I don't I put no weight into polygraphs at all. I think they're they're a waste of time. They're a waste of resources. And all they do is just muddy the waters of anything. In this case, a perfect example. If everyone who failed a polygraph in this case committed the murders, then th- there was a lot of people that committed. You know, there, there's way more than you would think committed the murders. You know, and Chris, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland would be a part of that group. But so th- that just shows you the unreliability. But, but people will have agendas and they'll say, well. Look, this person failed a polygraph, so they're guilty. It's like, well, yeah, so did that one. Well, yeah, but polygraphs don't work, but they work for that one, but not for that one. Mm-hmm. It's just, you might as well just throw them out, throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's just, they are worthless, in my opinion. And if there was any degree of accuracy with them, then I think that they would be admissible in court, you know, and, and, and it also depends on the examiner. You know, we had uh, in our season, was it season three case, uh, Jesse Eldridge passed a polygraph, and he had Eric Holder Holden. The one that's not <laughs> uh, the, the the politician, yeah, yeah. Um, is is literally a world renowned polygraph examiner. You know, has really written a book on polygraph examinations. Did a polygraph on Jesse Eldridge and showed that he was telling the truth. Didn't matter. They still went ahead and proceeded and, and prosecuted and convicted him anyway. Um, but th- th- he's talked about in several articles and interviews how just the examiner not closely. Issuing the test properly and analyzing the results properly can make a huge difference. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Liz writes, were these behavioral analysis questions just mailed out to the West Memphis Police Department? Did anyone from the FBI go over the answers with Gitchell and give any insight other than the packet sent out? Not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen anything in the case documents indicating that they helped them interpret the answers. They gave the guide. And so they're in the guide, which is up on our website. They give suggestions on how to interpret the the answers of the question. So I, I think that's as far as they went at that point. And then Robert asked if the FBI ever gave a profile of the suspect. Well, no, not back in 93, at least that I'm aware of. Now, there is an article, one of when I was going through all the newspaper clippings for this particular episode, where Inspector Gary Gitchell tells the media that the FBI is working on creating a profile for the case, which for those of you that aren't aware, and we're going to get into this, there'll be a whole episode or two about this later on, but behavior analysis profiling, where they look at the crime scene, victimology, all that, and they give you an indication of 
the type of offender or offenders you might be looking for based on the information at hand, based on criminal behavior or behavior that's that's picked up from the crime scene. Um, so Inspector Gitchell says that the FBI is going to be doing that, but I don't have any indication they ever did. And also they arrested uh, suspects before that would have happened anyway. Eventually, there was a full profile created for this crime scene, uh, but it wasn't by the FBI officially. It was created by John Douglas, who is the father of criminal profiling in the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI, who's retired now and um, works as an expert in the field. Uh, so former FBI agent uh, John Douglas did, in fact, give a profile of this crime scene, but it wasn't until years after the offense. And we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that profile further down the road. Okay, this next one comes from Eva. That's right, Eva. Why were there questions regarding religion, God, and the Bible in the questionnaire, suggesting some satanic activity on day five of the investigation? The whole satanic cult angle of this came into question pretty early by a couple of people, and we'll get into that uh, further down the road. But basically, you have a horrific crime scene like no one in the state of Arkansas even has ever seen before, and the police just didn't know what to do with it. They've never seen anything like this before. And back in this time, in the in the early 90s, was the time of the, quote, satanic panic, which, you know, isn't to blame for all this. But at the time, I mean, I was, I was around during that time, and my, my parents would warn me about, about satanic cults. And, you know, there were, I had woods near where I lived where I wasn't allowed to go in uh, because there could be satanic cults back there. And actually, it wasn't at my house. It was a friend of mine's house. His parents wouldn't let us go in there. So when they see this, this gross, horrific crime scene that with no apparent motive, too, I think it's just a theory that was thrown out there that uh, police had definitely eventually ended up uh, attaching themselves to. Okay, and Carrie writes, could the, quote, homo note written by the detective refer to, quote, homicide rather than homosexual? I thought it was quite a leap to assume the detective thought the suspect was gay. Also, during the questioning, the suspect said he thought the boys were sexually assaulted. Perhaps the, quote, homo note meant the suspect suggested it was a homosexual, not that the suspect himself was a homosexual. No, he was referring to Brian Holland and Chris Morgan. You got to watch the whole interview to see it. But throughout the course of the investigation or of the interview, Chris Morgan admitted to I don't want to get into a whole lot of this, but I'll I'll just say that he admitted to in the past uh, participating in homosexual acts with someone. And I'm not saying that because there's anything wrong with that. It's just because he was insisting that he was not gay, but he had done this thing. Also, uh, part of Wendy Holmes' alibi, and I believe from their own statements, uh, the night of the murder, they were hanging out in a bar that was known to be a gay bar. Uh, so I think that's where it came from. But most certainly with Chris Morgan, he told them that he had participated in homosexual physical activities before. And so that's where that came from. And again, from a lot of ignorance and confusion back then, uh, this crime was immediately or initially determined to have been some sort of sexual assault, probably by a homosexual offender at the time. Keep in mind, again, autopsies were not back yet at this time. All right, and then we've got a few questions here about the case in general. Allison writes, I'm confused about what time people started looking for the boys. I know the one officer told the parents to wait an hour and then report it, but I thought they were looking for them during that time. If it's assumed they were murdered during that hour, where were they looking during that time? Okay, that, that's a really good question. So at that point, as far as we know, the only ones that were actively looking were John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers, along with Melissa's son, Ryan. Uh, and they were the ones that talked to the officer and told him to wait an hour. 
Now, the place where that interaction took place was on Broadway Street east of the neighborhood. At the, I believe it was the Big Star, which I think was a gas station. So the issue here is, remember, John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers didn't know Chris was with anyone else. You know, he was he was there alone. He was in the carport. Melissa says he comes in and out of the house and they come back and he's gone. So as far as they know, Chris is alone. And so they, they immediately went back and started looking through the neighborhood, but they they went the wrong way. They didn't go up by the woods where they were, which would have been northwest of their house. Uh, it sounds like most of the place they were looking was to the east, southeast of the neighborhood. Uh, so it's the exact wrong direction. So uh, where the boys were, well, while they're at the Big Star gas station somewhere on 7, 730, the boys are in the woods behind the Blue Beacon at about that same time. And they were basically, if you drew a straight line between the Blue Beacon woods, the Turtle Hill woods, and the Big Star gas station where they talked to the cop, if you drew a straight line there, their house is almost right smack dab in the middle of that line. So they were just, they were looking in the east, southeast part of the neighborhood, kind of working their way around where the boys were up in the northwest part of the neighborhood during that time. And then Annette says, I know the police were not looking, but were families looking overnight? Yeah, the parents were looking throughout the night and some other family members and friends as well. Um, I think in John Mark Byer's statement, I think it originally said 2.30 in the morning when we talked about the search, but it was actually, I believe, 4.30. I think it was, it was into the, the, the wee hours of the morning that they were still out there looking. Melissa was with them some of the time. Pam Hobbs, she was out there at some point during the night. Terry Hobbs was out there. Uh, Todd Moore uh, came onto the scene uh, around 5, 5.30 in the morning. I think that everyone had gone home at that point. For a short period of time, but uh, and then um, John Mark Byers, I think, said in a statement or somewhere along the way that a friend of his, Tony Hudson, was helping him look. Uh, we had, you know, Jackie Hicks Sr. and Jr., Pam, that's, that's Pam's parents and brother, her father, her father and brother were out looking. So, yeah, there was a lot of family throughout most of the night that were out there looking still. Okay, and Ashley says, just wondering why it's believed the short the crime scene was washed down and not caused by the water itself. So that's a good question. We're going to come back to this because I haven't had time to get on the phone yet before we recorded this with uh, listener Paul Day, who is um, I don't remember, is, is official. He's an, he's a college professor, but I think he's a geologist. But Paul is kind of breaking down, doing some math about the water levels where they he he has told me that he believes the water dropped over two feet from the time the boys went into the water until the time that they were found in that little creek, which which sounds plausible. And he's saying that the you know that that's why the bank that flat bank there could have looked like it was washed down is just because of the water. Two questions for Paul uh, that he's still looking into. I think he's, he's sort of answered them to me a little bit over text. Um, one question was if that's the case, then how you know because they did luminol testing a couple of weeks later and did find evidence of biological material or blood right there on that bank. And he mentioned it could be you know if, if the bank was underwater, how would that be possible? And he mentioned, you know, it could do with the specific gravity of blood as opposed to water, meaning blood will sink in water. Um, so it could have went down there, but you still got to deal with the current. You know, you you know, how long is it going to take to get to the bottom of the water before it gets to the bank? Why was it only right there? But more importantly to me is the fingerprint found on the bank uh, by Tony Anderson. You know, so it's right when they find the bodies. They checked all everybody that was there on the scene. It was none of theirs. And there was a clear fingerprint that he was able to get seven or eight points off of on that bank, which to me is a clear indication there's no possible way that water was higher than that the day before or the night before, because not only would water, you know, if you talk about a fingerprint in mud or even in clay or whatever it is, you're not talking about, you know, grease left on your finger on a flat surface. Literally, the ridges 
present in that fingerprint are individual grains of sand, dirt, clay, whatever they are. Individual grains that are stuck together in have made that ridge. Well, when they're underwater, that's going to break that up. As the water's flowing, there's I just don't see any way, even if it's just pulling away one grain of sand at a time as the water flows over it, that it would be preserved. And also, I think Paul had mentioned in our text, and again, I haven't spoken to him on the phone yet. I know he's doing more research on this, but he had mentioned that you know, if it's clay, then it would hold up better underwater. But if it's clay, then why are there? Why is there just a completely flat bank with one sole solitary thumbprint in it? You, I would expect to see if that's the reason it's still there because as the clay holds up, there would be footprints and other handprints and other things like that in the in the mud there, as opposed to just one single solitary print. So it's they seem to contradict each other. You know, if, if if clay will hold the print underwater, okay, then it should have also held footprints and everything else. But I just don't see any possible way that a flowing body of water would preserve a single thumbprint with enough definition left in it to get seven or eight points for a fingerprint comparison off of it. Uh, it seems unlikely to me. I mean, there, there's a lot of unknowns here. We'll come back to this after I have time to talk to Paul more and he can explain it to me a little bit more. But, you know, he, he's 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 coming at it from a geological standpoint with a lot of um, science and math. And I'm just looking at it kind of from a common sense perspective of, you know, the, the fingerprint seems to trump the math. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Cassie wants to know, did Bob say that Christopher had the most injuries? I'm thinking that if Chris had the worst injuries, the killer would have had the most connection with him. No, what I said was that a common misconception is that Christopher had the worst injuries. Uh, and that's because Christopher was the one that was was castrated, so to speak. And so there's been a lot of people saying there was a personal connection to Chris Byers. But in fact, uh, in my opinion, Stevie, Br if we look at perimortem wounds, I think that Stevie Branch is the one that suffered the most injuries. I mean, he was the one. They all had injuries to the head. They all had skull fractures. They all had brain hemorrhages that were going to kill them, certainly. Um, they had some other, there was a lot of, there's a lot of debate and we're going to get into all this later on. I know I keep saying that, but, uh, we just, we got a lot of ground to cover still, um, wounds that are post-mortem. Uh, some people say they're perimortem. Some say they're post-mortem. We'll get into that. But Stevie Branch has the left side of his face just demolished. I mean, just, just fractures and bruises and just cuts all over his face. In my opinion, Stevie Branch is the one that sustained the most damage. Uh, as far as you know, that shows a personal connection. You know, you could you can interpret it that way, but again, you're reading tea leaves there. You never know what the scenario was like. Maybe there was no personal connection to any of them. It could have just, or maybe there was to one. They, you know, say say it was Michael Moore was was the personal connection that gets it, and and Stevie just happens to be the one that has the personality that's that's going crazy and fighting back against the perpetrator or perpetrators, and so he gets it worse. I don't know, but uh, in my opinion, as far as perimortem before death wounds, Stevie Branch definitely uh, took the worst of it. We, I, I think, I think most people would agree Michael Moore took the least. He was the one twenty-seven feet up the bank. He had, you know, it looked like took a couple of blows to the head and had fractured skull and brain hemorrhaging. Chris Byers was pretty similar to that, uh, but although he had the castration, and we'll talk about whether that was um, postmortem or, or perimortem. And then Stevie Branch's face is just is just mutilated. It's, it's very sad. But I think that, in my opinion, Stevie, before death, took the, the brunt of it. Okay, and our last thought comes from Jennifer Carlson again. 
Bob says he believes the boys were stripped to aid in animal predation and the permanent concealment of the bodies. I'm wondering, how was this possible in a dish that didn't always contain water, was shallow in most places, and had kids frequently back there riding bikes and four-wheelers? How quickly would one think turtles could consume three boys and the bones float away? Wouldn't that take months or even years? Why wouldn't someone with a car just load them into their car when no one was looking around and dump them in the river rather than strip them and put them in a shallow ditch? Well, to begin with, there was never an opportunity where no one was looking, so let's address that first. As far as whoever the killer or killers are, this crime scene is completely boxed in. There is no, that's why I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that it's a dump site or a secondary crime scene. And I also don't believe that the offender or offenders had any opportunity. They didn't have any other choice. I mean, this literally is the best choice. You have a set of woods under three acres of woods, and it's boxed in. So if you try to remove the bodies, like she's talking about, to go and dump in the river or something, well, here are your options. Carry them, three boys, so you're talking one at a time, across the pipe bridge, which I know for a fact that sometimes people will trip and fall walking across the pipe bridge when they're not carrying anything. No comment. (laughs) Right. So say they could get across. You're literally walking, carrying a dead body in broad daylight, if it's before 8 o'clock, across this bridge, and then up the hill, and then right there is a house an occupied house, and on the other side of the road right there is an apartment complex full of people with their backyards facing exactly where you're at, Uh, and then have to get to a vehicle if you parked it there. I mean, there's just no way you can go that way. So then you've got a couple other options. You could go into the Blue Beacon truck wash, where you have 24-hour employees, 24-hour operations of trucks coming in and out of there, uh, and not a place where there's a lot of passenger car parking. So you you carry them out of the woods, again, one at a time, into an occupied running business with streetlights all over the back of it, lighting up the parking lot, even if it's after dark. Uh, That seems pretty unlikely. Or you go straight to the north and you pop out onto the service road right next to the interstate where there's a car going by about every two seconds constantly. So in the other way, you go to the east, but you just go into more uh, open field until you get to either the bayou again or the interstate. So my point being, there was no way that anybody could take these boys and put them in a river or dispose of them in any other way. Once this crime occurred, in the if the offender offenders or when they decided they needed to try to conceal the crime scene, they had zero options other than what they did. So the, the woods, again, is small, but the area where they're found is is a steep bank down into this particular part where this little creek is. So it's the most, it's literally the most concealed part of this entire woods is right there where they were found. And the assertion that the, the kids are back there riding bikes and four wheelers, from my knowledge, is not entirely accurate. Now, the Robin Hood woods south of the bayou is where a lot of people would ride four wheelers and bicycles all the time, for sure. But this side, that's not true. I've, I've never heard anybody say that there were kids riding bikes back there. I could see maybe a bike every once in a while, but you're talking about steep hills narrow paths, and in order to have a bike back there, you either have to come off the service road uh, by the highway there, or you have to take them across the pipe bridge. Uh, as far as four-wheelers and three-wheelers, no. There's no paths even wide enough to do that. You clearly can't get a three-wheeler or a four-wheeler across the pipe bridge. And so unless somebody took one in there from the service road from the Blue Beacon side and went in, which there's no evidence that's ever happened. So it's not this area is not as frequented as people 
might think that it is. And people can make assertions, but Mike, you know, and we're this is something else that's coming up. We interviewed someone who worked at the Blue Beacon truck wash and lived in the Mayfair apartments, and their route to work every single day was across that pipe bridge. That's right. Yeah, and he says absolutely nobody was in those woods. Occasionally, maybe somebody would wander back in there, but this was not an area where kids played all the time, despite what many people will say, according to, and that's just one witness that we've talked to, that were there at that time. So and then again, even if they're in the woods, in the paths that are there, they're not necessarily down in this this deep embankment into this creek where the boys' bodies were found. So so that's thing one. Uh, as far as the animal predation goes, and I didn't say that's what happened. I think that's a possibility. You know, when we're trying to look at why were the clothes removed. So you have, uh, for one thing, I, I think that it's used to keep the boys under the water, if nothing else. You know, their their clothes removed and they're bound up. Uh, clearly, despite, again, some people's arguments, these are not restraints. The way they were tied up does not restrain them. It does not keep them from doing anything. Just put their hands right back in front of them, untie these very simple basic knots, little little overhand uh, half-hitch knots could easily be undone, uh, just the same as untying your shoe. Uh, so clearly they weren't used to restrain them because they they just went hand to, ri- or hand to ankle. Uh, it was done to keep them under the water. You know, clothes are going to cause you to float. Clothes are going to float up. If your arms aren't tied down, they're going to float up, especially shoes, which eventually did float up. Uh, but if they were on their feet, that's going to cause the bodies to expose. So clearly uh, you, you could say maybe it wasn't intended to be permanent, uh, certainly long-term. Uh, and I think we can all agree, at least, the idea was that they don't be found. You know, maybe the killer didn't think months or years ahead of time that the, you know, that the bodies would, you know, the, would, the, the bones would float away or bury down into the mud. But certainly, they thought all they're thinking right now is they can't find these bodies right now uh, when they did the concealment. As far as the turtles, again, we're going to talk about all that later on. You know, there's a lot of debate one way or another. But uh, to answer your question, what I can tell you is today... If you go throw, say, I don't know, a whole chicken into the bayou for five hours and come back, you will have chicken bones. That's all you will have left. That's how quickly the turtles in that bayou will consume a chicken. And also tell you, if you throw, I don't know, say, an entire whole pig into the bayou, uh, if you and you come back two weeks later, you will have nothing but pig bones left. So if that answers your question... Uh, as far as it's going to take months or years, that is absolutely not true in that in that exact bayou, uh, in that exact body of water, in the same conditions, an entire whole pig put in there can be consumed by the turtles in that water in less than two weeks time to where it's nothing left but bones. So hopefully that answers that question and all that. We're going to go into way more detail with that further down the road. Um, but uh, this is this is another long one and we got to start putting together this week's episode where we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to go back to the night of May 5th and on. Uh, we're going to start breaking down the door-to-door canvassing of the West Memphis Police Department after the boys went missing. And there's some pretty shocking information uh, that I'm sure a lot of you have never heard before. So that's coming up on Sunday. Thank you all for all of your engagement. I'm really enjoying all the interaction back and forth so far in this season. A lot of great questions, comments, and theories. And we'll talk to you guys all again next week. See ya. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. 
I also want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a huge thank you to Katie Ross at createdintandem.com. Katie has taken over the design and maintenance of our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Uh, still under construction. We had a couple of things. I think somebody today pointed out uh, a few things we need to change on there. But she's done a bang-up, awesome job of redesigning the website. All the case documents are up. We're working on getting all the transcripts up on the site. Pretty easy to navigate. So thank you again to Katie Ross at createdintandem.com for taking over the website. Uh, also, I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, Anna Dindorf, and Stephanie McConnell. And thank you to all of you, as always, for all of your engagement and your support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can also send them to our Facebook page. You can also make comments or make posts on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. Or you can always leave us a voicemail at 269-224-2833. And you can do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can always follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Fifty-seven seconds of silence. You go back and forth. Is it forty-seven or fifty-seven? It's actually forty-seven seconds of silence. That's my fault. That's all right. Forty-seven seconds. I used to be somebody who didn't know how to cook, but thanks to Blue Apron, that no longer defines me. Cut that line. <laughs> Stupid. That's. I like the effort, though. You know, I like I the mean, intensity. I was all over it. I like the intensity. <laughs> you know, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> Maybe working. podcasting isn't this your isn't thing. working. <laughs> Just click print and you're done. You're wrong. That's that's stamps.com. Sorry, man. <laughs> you're on a roll today though. All that for less than fifty bucks? I'm in. Let's do it. I need to conclude this ad with the final word. Yeah.